All right, so today we're uh, looking at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4. And as we dive into this series, um, Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. You might think it's written by Timothy. It's not. Timothy is a young pastor, um, so much so that Paul actually tells him in the scriptures, don't let people disregard you because of your youth. In other words, you have a voice. God's given you that voice. I'm going to teach you how to lead the church. Today, we're studying and looking at the topic of discernment. Discernment is a type of wisdom. And if there is anything that we need today in the world that we live in, it's wisdom. Discernment specifically asks the question, what is most important to you? What is most important to you? And as Christians, we should be able to answer that question with Jesus is most important. He should hold the top priority in our life. He is number one out of all priorities and all dreams and all hopes, and that's that. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But let's go ahead and and dive into this. And uh, we're going to start off real easy with some very, very light scriptures. 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Welcome to grace. Uh, Okay. So Paul is teaching Timothy and he says, the Holy Spirit clearly says, I think that's fascinating just from the perspective of Paul is very clear about what he's about to tell you about. He's not ambiguous about it. He's not going, maybe this is true. Maybe this isn't true. But he says, the Holy Spirit says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and actually things, doctrines, teachings that are taught by demons. Now, when he talks right here, he says, clearly the scripture says, the the spirit says, later times. So what does that mean? It means in the days prior to the return of Jesus, right? This Holy Spirit clearly says to us that in the days prior to the return of Christ, some will abandon the faith. Let's talk about um, later days. There, There is a story in the Bible that I just love. It's the story of Peter walking with Jesus. And you gotta know, Peter is either all great or all bad. (laughs) He's the only disciple that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan too. But he's also the only disciple that when he saw Jesus walking on water, had the audacity to go, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And walks out there on the water. It was incredible. He's just an all or nothing kind of guy, right? So one day he's walking with Jesus and as he's having this conversation with him, he's concerned about something. He's trying to figure out a puzzle. And the puzzle was, uh, who's gonna be the person, because Jesus mentioned it, who's gonna be the person who betrays Jesus. Now, now here's the strange thing. Jesus has already told all of them who it's going to be. It's in this moment in the upper room where he's giving us the first communion. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me, of which a hush you know, falls over all the disciples. They're like, what? You know, and so he says, but the one who dips his bread, so he's got the cup like we do and the bread like we do. And he says, the one who dips his bread into my cup will be the one who betrays me. And Judas is like, I'm sorry, what? Right? And, uh, and, so, and so the crazy thing about it is while all the disciples are present right after Jesus says this, none of them can actually conceive of the idea that Judas really would be the person to betray them. They could think, man, oh, Matthew, sure, that guy's crazy. Like, you know, like, you know Luke, you know, who, okay, fine. You know, like they'll look for someone else, right? But, 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 but Judas, no way. Why? Because Judas had this incredible skill that we're going to come back to in just a little while. He had this incredible skill. He was extremely able to manage his outward image. He put on a sense of religiosity that everyone admired. He looked pious, and he was also the holder of the finances of the, of, of the, of the group. 
and he was also very charitable. And so when people looked at Judas, they thought, this is a man of God. And he's over there dipping in Jesus's cup. So Peter, Peter on the other hand, is walking with Jesus, trying to figure out who the puzzle is. And, and he's walking with Jesus, and he's, 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 he's trying to, he's, I don't know, you know, Jesus, who's the person? Who's the person? And he goes, is it John? Because that guy's always a little suspicious, you know? Like, is it John? Which is kind of crazy because the Bible tells us that John was the disciple Jesus loved the most. Now, of course, John's writing this in the book of John, right? So there is that, okay? But, but Jesus turns to Peter and he goes, Peter, he goes, and it's almost like Jesus gives this throwaway thing. He doesn't answer his question. He goes, Peter, what is it to you if I want John to stay alive until the day that I return, my second coming? What is that to you? And Peter doesn't know how to take this. He's like, what? And so obviously he goes back and he processes it with some people. How do we know that? Because the Bible says next that it spreads all throughout Jerusalem that John will never die until Jesus returns. And so what happened was, he was, Peter's trying to make sense of this thing. You know, he doesn't understand. He goes back, he tells some people, it begins to spread that John will not die, right? Now, John's the last to die among them, but he does die. From the very beginning of the church, people have been interested and consumed with the idea of Jesus's return. And, and, and we have some clear teaching on this, some great clear teaching that should allow us to discern truth from error, right from wrong in this area, right? And I'm going to teach it to you in just a second. But just yesterday, the day before yesterday, I was on TikTok. Yes, I'm on TikTok. And uh, I was on TikTok and I was looking at this lady who, who was like, Jesus is about to return. He's about to return right now. And she has thousand people on her like little downline right here, right? And they're all listening and asking questions. And she's like, this box has been checked in prophecy. This has been checked in prophecy. What you need to know is that all those boxes have been checked off and on throughout history for the last 2,000 years. And what you need to know is that Jesus said, we are living in the last of days 2,000 years ago. But because a 1,000 years is as a day to God, and a day is like a 1,000 years, the time frames that, that are talked about, when we talk about the latter times or the end times, it's not the same thing as it is to us when we're thinking, well, 20 years from now, that's a long time. But that's why I say in the communion service, when we see God, whether he returns in this lifetime or 10,000 lifetimes from now, we don't know. We just don't know. So, so let's take a look at this, the latter times. What does, what does this mean? Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says this, but about the day or hour. So let's talk about this. About the day or hour of what? Of the return of Christ. So in regards to the day of Christ's return, no one knows. Everyone say, no one knows. Who knows? No one knows, right? Okay, so we have it right here. So when someone's on TikTok and they're going, he's about to return, he's got, got all these proofs, do they or do they not? They do not, right? So next time you see a preacher and he's like, right around the corner, Jesus is going to return. Yes, but no, because they thought right around the corner in the last days, 2,000 years ago, Jesus would return. We have no idea. So no one knows. Watch this. Just to make it clear, Matthew's like, I want you to understand this. Not even the angels know. So those suckers are up in heaven. If they don't know, we're not going to know, right? right? Nor does the Son of God, but only the Father. So people go, hold on a second. That poses like a question. So how is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit one person and Jesus doesn't know something? It's fairly simple. And here's, here's the answer to that question. When Jesus walked around the world physically, like as a human being, he was just like you and I. When he got hot, he sweat. 
when he, got, when he walked a long distance, he was tired. He couldn't be one of the attributes of God, one of the personality characteristics of God. This is why God can hear your prayers and someone's prayers in Iran, right? He's omnipresent. He's in all places at one time, right? But when he was walking around like this, he wasn't in all places at one time. He can only be in one place at one time like you and me. Now, the reason why it's important is because in order for God to fulfill his mission, sometimes he has to pull back, not lose, not get rid of, but pull back parts of who he is to be able to accomplish the mission. So he holds back this knowledge from himself. He doesn't even know the day of his return. One day the father will say from heaven, it is all done. The full number of people who will be, who will be followers have come into, into, into uh, relationship with me. And now we're gonna close down this thing called human history. And we're gonna start something completely new. A new heaven, a new earth, peace and joy for all those who would trust Christ with their life. And I want you to know that my 100% bias in, this, in every single message that I ever preach, whether it's a practical one or a deeply theological one, is that if you're not a Christian in the room, that you would take your first step toward Jesus. I do that because I believe that your life will be infinitely better here and in the next life if you follow God's path for your life. Amen. Okay, and our goal for you is we want you to be blessed and we want you to be whole. That's the only motivation behind what we do and why we do it. But he goes on in Matthew, just uh, four chapters later, and he says this. So what are we supposed to do until the latter time show up, the days of the Lord? Well, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to help people take their next step toward Christ until Christ shows up. And our job in doing that, watch this, watch this, so important, is that we're not building a country club here or a social uh, organization. We're not just hanging out with friends. That's part of it. You should have friends. Some of your best friends are in the room and you've never met them. You just need to get to know these people, right? You need to know each other, right? Don't come hear the lecture and just take off. That's part of it. But we're not building that kind of organization. We're building a kind of organization where Central Florida can come to know Jesus. We're on mission together. It's what we do. But it's not just what Grace does. It's what the church from 2,000 years ago did and what we're supposed to do if the Lord tarries for the next 3,000 years. It's what we do. We help people take their next step toward Christ. So let's take a look at verse one again. The spirit clearly says that in the latter times, in the days right before Jesus returns, some will abandon the faith. Now, this is kind of cause for concern, I think, for some, because they think, well, am I gonna be one of those people? Um, one of the challenges is understanding what the phrase abandon the faith means. If you and I look at this in English, we might think it's somebody who moves from faith and belief and trust in Jesus to being an atheist or something like that. Well, what you need to realize is that in terms of actual atheism, both in our country and worldwide, the number of actual true atheists, which by the way, is a belief system, the actual number of atheists that, or people that move from faith in Jesus to being an atheist is minuscule. It's tiny. It's almost inconsequential. Every person's consequential. But the numbers and the statistics are super small. That is not what this is talking about. What this is talking about, if you go back in the original Greek, this is talking about a reprioritization of a Christian's position of God in their life. So you can walk away from God. You can abandon the faith without ever saying, I reject Jesus. 
you can simply take Jesus from being number one in your life to number two in your life. And I promise you, if he's number two, he'll be five. If he's five, he'll be 10 and eventually won't be on the list at all. And you could be described as someone who has abandoned the faith without ever saying, I don't believe in God. And all it takes is you and I just taking a step away from God, a step away from God, a step away from God. That's what it means for us to abandon the faith. And so I think it's very important for us to realize that we have to be intentional up on the screen, this principle. It's essential that we become intentional about the things that we love and that we value. We have to be intentional about them, guys. Listen, I had somebody ask me, they said, it was a conversation that I was having with another person. And uh, the person said, you don't need to go to heaven. You don't need to uh, go to church to go to heaven. And let me just tell you this right now, as I've studied the Bible for 25 years of my life, that's 100% true. Okay, now listen, it's 100% true. You don't need to go to church to go to heaven. You are saved by grace and faith alone, period. That's it. It's not your good works. It's not your good deeds. It's nothing you add to it. It's not your heart. It's none of that. It's just you're saved by your faith and your trust in Jesus, period. That's what gets you to heaven. But you also don't need to go home to be married. But if you don't go home ever again, that marriage is going to be a disaster and that relationship is going to be destroyed. Very much the same way. More often than not, people who walk away from the church, they don't walk away from God. They don't say like, I'm out with God. But what happens in their life is because they're not connected anymore to community and to a source of truth. He becomes number two, he becomes number five, he becomes number 10, he becomes number 20, he's off the list. And we will have abandoned the faith. And it's not so much that we are abandoning God directly, but it's that we abandon him step by step by step. It's much more insidious than that. Verse one, the spirit clearly says that in latter times, later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, this is something that's just very aggressive language, but it's not unfamiliar to us if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, this story may be new to you. But the Bible teaches us that in the very beginning of all things, God created the world and he created it good and beautiful. He didn't create a broken world, the one that you and I live in right now. He didn't create all the mess that we have right now. We did that. And he is straightening it out slowly but surely. But I want you to realize that, that when he created the world for Adam and Eve, for the first two, our first two parents, and by the way, we believe this isn't a metaphor. We believe this is history. Jesus calls Adam and Eve an actual person in the New Testament. So, so, so when, when we look back and we look at what God did for Adam and Eve, he created human flourishing, the best possible environment. They were the only two people on the planet ever, ever in human history who were fully happy and joyful until sin entered the room. And what happened was a demon spoke to Eve and then Eve to Adam, an angel actually, demon, that came and said, listen, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God told them not to eat from, he said, you can do anything in this garden you want. You can do anything. Just don't eat from this. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve, you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the crazy thing about it the crazy thing about it is this demon was speaking the truth. They would know what God knew, both good and evil. But up until that point, all they knew was whole and good and beautiful and peaceful and joyful. And then when they took that act of rebellion, which was basically like, I'll find my happiness outside of God. He can be my second priority. I'll be my first priority. When we did that, sin broke the entire universe. 
And every single bit of suffering that happens in the world today from child abuse to war can be traced back to this one moment in human history where we said, we don't need your protection anymore. And God said, all right. And he cast us out into the world. And it's a fascinating moment because in that moment, what we have is we have, you know, as he talks about this, he's like, still to this very day, there are deceiving spirits and things that have been taught by demons that circulate through our world. We're going to look at a couple of those in just a little while. But he goes on, he says, he goes, who brings these things to you? Not a demon brings these things to you, but a person brings these things to you. Verse two, such teachings come to us through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So let's talk about hypocrisy for a second. Today, this is like one of the worst things you can call someone. I don't know what it is. People are afraid to be called a hypocrite all the time. And so I'm gonna look at some definitions, but let me talk to you about why we're talking about this for two reasons. Number one, if someone comes to you and says, hey man, you know, you're very hypocritical in the way that you live. You need to be able to examine that and say, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Now, of course, you gotta do this with the right person, right? This is discernment. You do this with people who love you and care about you, some rando on the street, who cares? Like, but when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I feel like you're living hypocritically right now, you need to ask the question, am I actually living hypocritically? Is this right? Am I doing stuff that I'm no, I don't wanna do? Am I being dishonest with my life? If so, change it. But secondly, if somebody comes to you with the accusation that you're being hypocritical, you need to realize that there are certain times when people make accusations against you that are not true. And as a result of them not being true and God not saying them about you, you can have the freedom to disregard what they say. Some of you literally walk around much of your life filled with anxiety about what other people think about you and about fear that someone's gonna think something bad about you. You don't need to be afraid of that. When someone says that you're worthless or that you're terrible or that you're an awful person, then you need to go back to the truth of the scripture. The scripture says you're a daughter of the king. He says that you have been healed by the blood of Christ. He says that you have an inheritance in heaven. He says that you are a child of God. I mean, these are the things that we are. These are not things that God says you can be one day. He says, this is who you are currently, right now, presently in your life. Don't worry. You don't need when somebody throws the accusation of hypocrisy on you to take it upon yourself or they say you're terrible in some way. You don't need to take that on yourself. If it's not true, you bear no responsibility for what they say. Let it go. So let's take a look at some of these definitions. I think they're super important. Um, actually, we'll start with Hebrews chapter 5, 14. I want you to see something. He says, but solid food, truth is for the mature. Watch this. Solid food or truth is for the mature. Why for the mature? Well, because we become mature by constantly having trained ourselves, okay? Next week, I'm gonna teach a message. And this part of the passage of, of uh, this principle that I learned early on when I started taking my um, spiritual life serious, it's called trying versus training. And it changed everything about it. And I'm gonna talk about it next week. It's all about this, this idea right here that truth is what is for those of us who wanna be mature in Christ. And it requires us not to just try more, try more, try more, but to train more and to train better so that we can become the people that God wants us to be, right? Distinguishing both good from evil. See, that's a hallmark of both wisdom and it's a hallmark of discernment. You can look at someone in your life and you can say, I can see whether or not this person is truthful or not, whether they're telling me the right thing or the wrong thing. You don't ignore red flags. You are wise to red flags. You are able to look at yourself and go, man, there's some red flags in my own life. I need to work on this. I'm gonna get to work, not trying harder, but training more. We'll talk about that more next week. 
But I want you to look at the definition according to Webster's Dictionary of hypocrisy. Up on, up on the screen, the first definition. It, a, a hypocrite is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue and, um, and religion or religion. So when you take a look at this definition, the first thing I want you to see is this word right here, false. So in other words, this person, this definition of hypocrisy is about a liar, a liar, okay? A liar, okay? That's the, that's the accusation made in hypocrisy in this definition, that the person fundamentally is a liar. And this is what Judas did really well. He was great at painting the outward picture of his life as one of holiness and righteousness, but inwardly, he was someone completely different. When you are wise and discerning, you can see the difference between someone who is, who is on the outside one way and the inside another way. You can see the difference. It's almost as if you can look right through the person themselves. I spend some very, very short amounts of time with certain people when I can go, man, I know this is the right kind of guy or this is the wrong kind of guy. I know this is the right kind of woman, the wrong kind of woman. Not that they can't grow and become different, but I know motivation sometimes when I see them. Why? Because that's what discernment and wisdom give you, the ability to see into those things. So a person who comes to you with a false appearance on the outside, they're one way on the outside, another way on the inside. That person right there, the Bible says, is someone that we should stay away from. Why? Because at the core of who they are, there is a lie. Now, some of you right now, you hear that and you go, well, man, maybe that's partly me. Maybe that's, I got some of that in me, maybe like fake it till I make it kind of thing. Well, let's take a look at uh, number two, definition. I think number two is more like all of us. Here we go. A person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs and feelings. Have you ever said to yourself, I want to be this kind of man, or I want to be this kind of woman, and then you didn't live up to it? Of course you have. I mean, that's every single person in the room. So in some sense, definition number two covers us all. So when someone comes and says that you're a hypocrite, you can go, of course I am, because I don't do this thing well. But the difference between one and two is everything. Why? Because one, at the core of who you are, you're a liar. The second definition, you're just not good at doing it right. Those are two really different things. One is a bad motivation. One is a fine motivation. See, the Bible tells us that we are to take our faith seriously, that we're to walk in goodness and joy in Christ so when we do that and fail to do that, when we fall short of that, because we're not good at it, that's a form of hypocrisy, but it's not a form of bad character. So when the person calls you a hypocrite, I would say all definitions in the second category make us hypocrites. Everyone is. And so is the person calling you a hypocrite because they've not lived up to their own standards. They've certainly not done what is right all the time. And in that sense, we're all hypocrites. But the question here is, are you false? Are you false? I, I don't mean, are you trying to be your best and you're just not quite there yet? Because hopefully that's true your entire life. I hope that you continue to try to grow and be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be in Christ. We're never going to make all of that work out. It's not going to be right. We're going to always fall short of that. But if you realize that all of us fall into category number two, you now can all of a sudden walk with a kind of confidence because you're not walking like a person who's walking on a glass floor waiting for one of those things to just pop out and you fall to your death. That's what it feels like for some of you because you're always walking around going, I'm afraid I'm gonna mess up. I'm afraid I'm gonna mess up. I'm afraid I'm gonna, you are going to mess up. Your pastor does it all the time. 
But that's not the problem. The problem is when we are false and lie about it. You know, when you fail and you go, I'm awesome. This is why Paul himself says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why can't I do the things I do want to do? It seems like he is, in essence, kind of morally disabled in this. Verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by Satan. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. This is so important right here. This concept right here is just brilliant for the writer in the first century to come up with, okay? And here's why. Because it has everything to do with the choices you and I are making on a day-to-day basis. As we're walking through life, we're making a series of choices. And if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who fails to live up to the standard that you hope you live, that's okay. Join the club, But if you are a Christian who is willfully saying, I choose this over and over again, a path away from God, I'm choosing this, I'm choosing this, I'm choosing this, here's what happens to your heart and mind. Here's what happens to your conscience. Such teaching that's demonically charged comes through hypocrites who are liars. Not people who failed the standard, you and I will do that, but we're talking about those who are intentionally masked in the world. Those people, their consciences have been seared. You know what happens when you take... um, you know what happens when you take a red hot iron and you put it on the skin? It burns the flesh and whatever symbol you have on it, burns it into the flesh. It burns the nerves in that situation, both on the skin and under the skin. And afterwards, when that thing heals, you can slap that thing all day long and you're not going to feel anything because the nerves have been damaged. You're, they're insensitive now. He's saying, if you listen to these teachings over and over again and give yourself over to them over and over again, you may walk so far down a road that your conscience no longer bothers you about your sin anymore because it's been desensitized. This is probably one of the worst possible conditions that you can find yourself in. This takes a work of the Lord to change your entire heart and mind. But some people have walked for so long in their sin that they've simply said, this is who I am. I don't feel bad about it. I feel okay about it, in fact. I got no problem with it. That's probably the most dangerous position you can find yourself in. So when he looks at that, he says, he says, such teaching has come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So, so what happens when your conscience has been seared like this? I truly believe that some false teachers today don't actually believe they're false teachers. I believe they have lied for so long about the gospel and lied so long about the truth that it's their native language now. And they're not even aware that what they're doing is wrong. And that's what happens when when we sear our hearts. Now watch this, this is super important because what will happen next is you can begin to see evidence of this in their life outwardly. And here's what happens. They start making up rules. They start making up rules. For example, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Why this? Because this original teaching that John, Paul is talking to Timothy about right now is this form of Gnosticism. It's an early belief system that believed that the material universe that we live in is bad and that the only thing good and righteous is our spirit on the inside of us. Spiritual things are good, material things are bad. But the Bible teaches us that that's not true because when God created the heavens and the earth, materiality, he said they are good. This is good. I mean, it's almost joyful. He steps back, he looks at the creation. He goes, man, this is on the seventh day. This is awesome. This is good. Material universe is good. It's fine for you to have things and stuff and 
material things, right? But the reason why they're saying marriage and foods are off track is because marriage leads to sex, God forbid, and, uh, and, and that makes you feel good, which is about your flesh and therefore is unholy. And foods that you eat that taste good, that give your flesh pleasure are bad too, so don't eat either one of these. Take certain foods that are bland and disgusting, you know, like Burger King. And uh, eat, eat, these, eat these kinds of things. They forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods. They're making up rules. You'll find that someone who is a false teacher will also add pressure to your life with rules they make up that don't come from the Bible. There are rules in the Bible. But the Bible says this, Jesus said it like this, that take up my yoke because my burden, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The thing about Jesus, when you walk with him, even the rules and things like that, when you love him and you put him first in your life, it's not hard. It's surrender. It's challenging at times, but you do it out of delight of the heart. So legalism. So I came up with a definition of legalism. Can I just tell you, this definition is fire. Okay, like I'm just sitting there and the Lord's like, boom, pops this thing in my head. And then I was like, no, it can't be me. I looked it up on the internet, nowhere. Okay, this right here, you're gonna see other preachers using this soon. Okay, I'm telling you right now, this is other preachers using it soon. Okay, I'm telling you right now, it's gonna happen. It's so easy, it's so portable. You ready? You're not even ready, I'm not gonna tell you. Like I'm, I'm legitimately gonna wait until you say I'm ready. Okay, all right, okay. All right, fine, ready? Here it is, so here it is. Legalism is making big things small and small things big. I mean, come on, listen, that is good. Let me tell you, let me tell you. All right, legalism is making big things small and small things big. Not long ago, I was having a conversation with a lady and she said, uh, she said, Pastor Mike, I think that we should dress up more at church. And I was like, in my head, I was like, that's stupid. Uh, but tell me, tell me, tell me what you, why you think that. She said, well, because when you dress up on the outside, you're showing God that you're giving him your best. And I thought to myself, no, no. She's taking this thing called dressing nice, which, it, it, by the way, if someone comes to grace in a suit, is it wrong? No, not 100%. If somebody comes in a tube top, is it wrong? Maybe, I don't know. But, I mean, like, like, it's a little creepy, right? But, 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 but no, no, it's not wrong. What? So, so think about it, think about it. So, so here's what she's saying. This small thing called dressing is now what I'm gonna use to define my best to God. Legalism is taking small things and making them big, okay? So, so she takes this big, she takes this small thing like dressing and makes it big. Then she takes the big thing, which is what? Her heart. I mean, didn't Jesus say that the father looks not at the outside, but he looks at the inside. That's right. So, so instead of having good character, a heart devoted, a life surrendered, what looks good on the outside is I have a pretty dress. It's a doctrine of a demon. It's a legalism. It's foolishness. And we do it all of the time. You ready? Here we go. Legalism is making big things small and small things big. We do this with our focus on the wrong big things. Politics. Politics. I see Christians 
And can I just preface this with saying, we've lost more ground in the church with our reputation across the country because we've screamed about our politics and not Jesus. Here it is. I've seen people scream about policies from a candidate that they hate. I've seen them cry. I've seen them yell. But when was the last time you cried about the lost who will die apart from Jesus and spend eternity apart from God? It's taking something at the top and pulling it down here. It's taking something at the top, which is big, and making it small and taking a small thing and making it big. I want you to think about this for a second. I mean, this is what happens to us. We kind of get deformed. You know, I can tell you right now who will be the next president. 100%, I promise. I can tell you, you guys want to know? 50% of the room is like, oh God, what's next? All right, so, so, so here, here, I'm just going to do what we always do, Bible. Whoever God says is going to be, is going to be the next president, period. The Bible tells us discernment, because you got to know the scriptures. The Bible tells us that God raises up the leaders for the appointed times, period. That's it. Why a pastor of the church right now? Because God said so. You know what? Who was, who was president the last time? Whoever God said so. The guy before that? Whoever God said, right? So, so watch this. This is super important. For some of us, we're so passionate about politics and angry and demonizing people around the country. This is godlessness in the form of righteousness. It's a trick. Why? Because doctrines of demons often are wrapped in the truth. And you go, well, what about the moral issues, Pastor Mike? They're important. 100% they're important. But here's the thing. Jesus is still on the throne. He's still working. And when was the last time you cried? Because a lost person doesn't know Christ. You ready? Here we go. That was the easy one. Sports. I knew a guy, his name was Robbie, who would come to church so angry because the Florida Gators lost. He'd walk in the church and I'd be like, what's wrong, Robbie? And he'd go like, the Gators lost. And I would be like, it happens a lot. But I want you to see, I went to, I went to college in Chicago. I have no horse in that race at all, okay? But listen, but, but in all seriousness, I want, you, I want you to think about it. He would come in, he's so angry, he's so frustrated. I'd be like, why? Because the sports team that you have nothing to do with whatsoever actually lost? Man, you can figure out what's at the top of your list by what you're angry about and what you're afraid of. If you're afraid of money and you think about it all the time, it's because it's at the top of your list and it's the most important thing. And when you take it off of the top and you start putting it, and putting Jesus back at the top, things begin to change. But I've never saw Robbie ever talk about human trafficking, ever. How about this one? Um, nutrition and fitness. Can we talk about it? Some of you guys are so passionate about what you eat and about your fitness level that you share it with everyone. You do, like a missionary. You share it with everyone. You're like, let me tell you about a life with keto. You know, it's just that, I mean, just it's how it, like, what's the enemy? The enemy's sugar. You know, I mean, it's just like, you will do that. But, but in all seriousness, many of these same people, good people, 
have not told other people about the forgiveness and joy of a life with Jesus in a dying world. Guys, this is not who we are. Things like parenting styles, permissive parenting, authoritarian parenting, worship styles. Is it like this? Is it like this? Do you bounce around like Eric on the stage? What, like, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Or do you worship like a Presbyterian? I mean, like, what do you, like, what do you do? What do you do? It's when you take small things and you make them really, really big things that everything begins to fall apart. But watch this. It doesn't have to be that way because when we make small things big, we lose our enjoyment of them. Did you notice that? So if you enjoy politics, put Jesus on the throne and you'll enjoy them more. Why? Because when you go in, you pull the lever, you know, you say, this is the person I'm gonna vote for and they don't win. You go, Lord, thank you that you're still on the throne, that you're still in control of the entire world, that nothing's actually changed. I may pay more taxes this year, but I'm not gonna have to do anything. It's not gonna destroy the world because you hold the world in your hands. You're in control. When your sports team doesn't win the thing, you can walk away and go, guys, we'll get them next time. And I mean, we, you will get them next time. You'll do, you'll ab, you'll do it 100%. But you don't have to become unsatisfied because of it. In your nutrition, you don't need to be so obsessive that you weigh every single thing that you eat to attain the perfect body style. In your parenting styles, you don't have to be dogmatic. This is the way to do it. I was so smart about children before I had them. And watch how this whole thing wraps up, verse four. For everything that God created is good. Oh, what a way to end. For everything God created is good. The universe, the world, everything that's in it, it's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. Watch this, watch this. Thanksgiving, a discerning heart is always a thankful heart because it has the right priorities, right? Because it is consecrated by, why does it have the right uh, um, priorities? It's consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. Spend more time in the word, reminding yourself of who God says that you are. Spend more time in prayer when you're worried and anxious. Let the king on the throne, not a president or a congressman or whatever, be the person who is your hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we, we realize that uh, we kind of are hypocrites. We don't do this thing really well. We fall down all the time, but we're so grateful that your mercies are new every morning. We're so thankful that you love us so much. And we ask right now, God, that you would help us take a step this morning where we can look at ourselves with the question of discernment. What, where is Jesus and what place is Jesus in my life? Help us to do that, Lord, as we take off. Help us to do that as we live the rest of this week. God, help us to become a part of a practice in our life. We need to constantly ask ourselves what place that Jesus is in, in our life. And Lord, when he's second or third, let us repent, let us move away from it and be the people you called us to be. It's in your name we pray, amen.